You know, if I really could, I, I, some of you don't know me enough to know if this is really true, but if I could, what I would love to do is just sit down with you so that we can interact and I can walk you through the book of Ecclesiastes. I mean, that would be so much more preferable than preaching. I really don't enjoy elevated distance from you. Um, it's just unfortunate, but it is the way that we do it. It's the way that a lot of churches do. So, But I am always wanting to get to know you, and I would love to, if you have questions about these sermons or questions about God and the text, I really hope that you will ask either me or one of the leaders or one of the people in our church, Pastor Matthew, and just let's get some deeper answers to what God is saying. God's awesome. And you cannot exhaust his depth. He is just deeper than you will ever know. And we will be billions and billions of years into eternity. And you're going to get to know God a little bit more that day than you did the billions and billions of years before. You're just never going to get to the end of them. I know we can't think like that, but that's really the truth of the matter. That's just God's inexhaustible beauty and riches. So let's get to know him a little bit more today, all right? So I'm going to answer some, I think, some gnawing questions that are germane or deep and central to every human soul that's ever been created. And whether you think this is going to interface with the bottom of your soul or not, I'm going to tell you right now with pretty good confidence it's going to. So if you could just trust me on that. Let me open up to uh, have you open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. It's page 554. If you didn't bring your Bible, would you grab one of the Bibles that's in front of you? Would you open it up to page 554? Or if you have your Bible, Ecclesiastes 6. We're in a series through Ecclesiastes called Life Under the Sun. And we are learning a lot. I am learning a lot. And what I want to start today with is actually a song from John Mayer, which I think is unbelievably appropriate to Ecclesiastes. Listen to these lyrics from his song, Something's Missing. I'm dizzy from the shopping mall I searched for joy, but I bought it all. It doesn't help the hunger pains and a thirst I'd have to drown first to ever satiate. Something's missing. And I don't know how to fix it. Something's missing, and I don't know what it is. No, I don't know what it is at all. How come everything I think I need always comes with batteries? What do you think it means? That is an incredibly insightful song. And I think he's voicing what everybody in humanity has voiced at one time or another, and by the way, what even a lot of people in the church are voicing. And I think and I believe that Ecclesiastes is really written to answer the questions that Mayor asks in that song, what is missing? And Solomon writes about the, this universal dilemma that we all have with this thing called dissatisfaction. Now, even right now for a moment, pull yourself into this message. And I would encourage you to do that by actually thinking about how satisfied you are in life. Have you ever battled with dissatisfaction? I can flip it. Have you ever battled with envy, jealousy, coveting, anxiety? They're all symptoms of this. They're all corollaries. 
And Solomon's about to return to something that he said earlier in chapter 2. You remember, he uses his spiraling technique. So he'll go on a little bit, then all of a sudden, he spirals right back to something that he said earlier, but now he goes a little bit deeper than he did the first time. And so I'm going to take you back, if you could flip in your Bible, back to chapter 2. Let's all flip together. Let's be students of God's Word. And in verse 24, Solomon had already written, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. That word means work that has very little return. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him... Now, I would underline that if I were you in your Bibles. Apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? That question... He's about to dig even deeper in, in chapter 6, and then he's going to begin to answer it. And I really hope that you pay attention enough today to this message that you can actually be an ambassador of God's word to somebody else that is in your life that is struggling with dissatisfaction. Because deep, abiding satisfaction, did you hear how I said that? I don't take the words deep and abiding out of that. Deep, abiding satisfaction is only available to those who know God. And to those who do not have a relationship with him, there will be a constant striving after wind. There will be fleeting moments of happiness and pleasure, but there will not be the satisfaction that settles into the bones of their soul. Without God, Martin Luther once said, the wicked begin their hell in this life. That's pretty deep. Without God, the wicked begin their hell in this life. Well, here's what I'm going to bring to you. I'm going to bring to you a few points. Here's the first one, the universal experience of dissatisfaction. Here's what Solomon's going to say, chapter 6, verse 1. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun. Now, already define it. Ready? Get ready to understand what is this evil. And it lies heavy on mankind... Here's the evil, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. But a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. This is grievous evil. So let's dig a little bit. You've got to get your mind around this before we can really understand what he's saying. Right? It's very simple, but it's, it's going to elude you if you don't grapple with it in your mind. So the evil that Solomon is referring to, here it is very simply, it's the inability to be satisfied with what you have. Notice he says it lies heavy on mankind. Well, that's odd. I don't know if you've used that phraseology in your life. It just likely means it's an inescapable experience for all of humanity. It lies heavy on mankind. And what we have is given to us, what we have is a gift from God, but he means more than just material possessions. Look what he writes. It's more than just uh, wealth possessions. There's honor. That's an immaterial possession. So are you successful? Now, you answered this for a moment. If I was in your living room with you, I would let you just sort of talk to me about this. I would ask you, are you successful? Have you been successful in life? Maybe you were the captain of your football team in high school. That's a success. That's an honor. Maybe you're a manager at your job right now. That's an honor that God's given to you. Maybe you're the person that everybody in your neighborhood goes to. 
when they're struggling. That's an honor. So do you have honor? Are you well-respected? Have you acquired some level of fame? Well, that's a gift from God. Listen, don't for a moment think that you were able to create that in your life. The Bible would argue with you. No, that's not true because it could, be, it could be taken away from you. God gave that to you. Yes, you partnered with him. Yes, you've done some wonderful things, but that's a gift from God for you. And they are gifts from God to not just his own people. Are you getting this? They are gifts that God gives to even non-believers. People that don't like him. Agnostics that don't know if he exists and want nothing to do with him. Atheists that don't believe he exists. They too are receiving gifts from God. And they receive them, we all do, in different measures. So you have something, you have some sort of possessions, you have some degree of wealth, you have some measure of honor, and they've all been given to you uniquely at the exact level that God desires. This is Solomon's argument. Now you remember, point number one is the universal experience of dissatisfaction. The point that Solomon is making is that what you have, when you unbox it, when you look at it carefully, what it is, it's been given to you by God and the precise, now everybody look at me, and the exact measure that God has chosen. Now you ready? Oh, this is an indictment. Complaining about your wealth, complaining about your possessions, complaining about your honor, or lack thereof of any of those is really a complaint to God. That's his argument. If God is the one that gives it, then complaining about what you don't believe you have in enough quantity is really a vertical complaint. It's a complaint to the God who gives them. But in a world of free choice, and this is probably what you're arguing with a little bit in your mind, that's all right, in a country of very pragmatic options like America, how can that be? How can it be that God gives us these things? Don't we learn? You pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, you go to college, you get a good life. It's one thing to be born into a caste society like you would have been if you were born in India. But in America, we're told to believe in ourselves. We're told to work hard. You can get whatever you want. Walt Disney, by the way, I think lied to us. He said, if you can dream it, you can do it. That's not really true. But that is in almost every movie that you're ever going to watch from Disney, at least the animated ones. I mean, didn't Survivor sing about this in the Rocky movies? Here's what they sang, rising up straight to the top, had the guts, got the glory, went the distance, now I'm, gonna, I'm not going to stop, just a man and his will to survive, it's the eye of the tiger, it's the dream of the fight. Solomon's saying, Stallone, I'm going to tell you, you might have the eye of the tiger, but look at things for one second from God's perspective, and you're going to see you did not get your dream from doing your sit-ups in a Soviet barn loft. You, get, you got it if you got it from God himself. Now, I don't know too many things more at odds in our world. Hear me, all right? More at odds in our world than God's sovereignty. It is like fingernails on a chalkboard for a lot of ears. 
So Solomon introduces us to a man. He's going to give us a fictitious man who had everything he wanted, yet he had no satisfaction. Why? Because God did not give him the one thing he needed most. It says it right there, the power to enjoy them. God withheld the power to enjoy the wealth, possessions, and fame that he had all to the level of his desire. He's like the donkey. I want you to put this image in your mind. He's like the donkey that is forever walking after the dangling carrot, but he will never reach it. And I wonder, I wonder if that donkey that I just told you about ever brays out the Rolling Stones hit, I can't get no satisfaction. You know how it goes, ready? I can't get no satisfaction because I try and I try and I try and I try. I can't get no, I can't get no. I don't know what it is about rock singers and double negatives because by all accounts he's getting a whole lot of it (laughs) jagger who sings that mick jagger he's echoing what threads through the music and movie world there is a vain search for satisfaction well we've got this guy that solomon introduces us to god had given the man all he wanted did you did you catch that it said he had all that he desired God gave him everything that he wanted, but because he wanted nothing to do with God, he lacked what makes everything you have settled into your soul. He lacked satisfaction. He lacked contentment. He never received power from God to enjoy what he had. Why? I'm going to answer the question. Why? Because he simply wanted nothing to do with God. It's not so much that God held the dog tree too high for the dog to jump. That is really a misconception that a lot of people have about God, and they then tell him he's unfair, and they want nothing to do with him. It's not that he held the dog tree too high. It's because God sat down on the couch with the treat in his hand, and the dog refused to come to him and eat. That's really accurate. If you want the treat, you got to climb into the lap of God. It requires a relationship. It requires one of faith, one of belief, one of submitting your life to him, one of learning to love God and be loved by God. And he would not do it, this man wouldn't. He lacked the power to enjoy life. But then something happened to the man. Maybe it was death. Maybe it was a stock market crash like in 2008. Maybe it was a Bernie Madoff scheme that imploded. And suddenly, look what the text says. A stranger enjoys them, the wealth, possessions, and honor. This is vanity, Solomon says. It is grievous evil. I mean, whatever happens to this guy, the man's honor and his possessions, it hits a roadblock at the grave. You cannot take it beyond death. It's going to stop right there on this side of eternity. Maybe he retired. Maybe he died then, right after retirement, before he's able to really live the good life. I mean, we've got people all over, maybe even in this church, that have been saving and saving and dreaming about the good life after retirement. I've heard story after story of people that have died months later. Solomon says that's vanity. Maybe he went from America's dad to prison like Bill Cosby. He lost it all. 
Maybe he was the most herald, heralded college player and then an NFL bust like Johnny Manziel. Who knows what it's like, but for whatever reason, this guy did not have the power to enjoy them, and all of a sudden, a stranger enjoys them, and Solomon says it's just an incredible vanity. Now, Jonathan Clements works, writes with the Wall Street Journal. He wrote this, We may have life and liberty, but the pursuit of happiness, not in America, it's not going well. We constantly hanker after fatter paychecks, and initially such things boost our happiness. But the glow of satisfaction quickly fades, and soon we're yearning for something else. That's the problem and the universal condition of dissatisfaction. But what's its cause? And there, there's the direction that Solomon's going to go. Boy, I really hope you... I mean, we're, we're dialing this message in as we go. It's getting more and more urgent. The second point, what's the cause of dissatisfaction? Well, movie, movie star Bo Derek. I mean, she's a theologian. She said, whoever said money can't buy you happiness simply didn't know where to go shopping. That was the cause of dissatisfaction, she said. Well, Solomon's going to go in a slightly different direction. Verse 3, if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he has also no burial, but I say, or I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to one place. And that sounds really confusing. It did for me when I first began to study this. I had to really think on this one. But Solomon's being brutally honest, actually painful, painfully honest, I'm sure, for some ladies here who have lost children. Someone who has it all but fails to find satisfaction is worse off than a baby that dies at birth. That's what he's saying. He's not pulling a punch. Here's why. That baby finds rest. Now, can I comfort you with this? That word rest is a word that points to eternity with God. That baby finds eternity with God, I believe is how you interpret that, but the one who fails to find satisfaction will never experience rest. There's always going to be this anxiety. There's always going to be this grasping for more and more to fill the soul. And there's going to be failure at every turn. And Solomon wrote, he, who, he, he also has no burial. In other words, the man will not be laid to rest. He's never going to find rest. And here's what he's saying. Even when he dies, he will not find rest. Why? Because he would not have a relationship with God. Now here's what you need to know to really unpack the key to understanding those verses. If you asked a Jewish person, let's just say a Jewish man for a moment, in the days of Solomon, what is the key to a happy life? If you asked a Jewish man, what is the key to a happy life? Here's what you're going to hear. A long life with many children. That's exactly the Jewish mindset. It still is, by the way. 
So Solomon offers a, fictitio- or a fictional example of a man with a hundred children. I mean, he's exaggerating to show a point. He's, this guy's got a hundred children, and he lived 2,000 years. But his soul is not satisfied with life's good things. What makes your life great, Jewish man in, De- in Solomon's day, is not long life and allotted children. Those are blessings, but if you don't have the power to enjoy them, they're not going to fill your soul. Now, if I were to ask you that question, or if you were to walk the streets of Easton or Allentown or New York City or anywhere else, and you were to just ask cold strangers, what's the key to a happy life? Well, you're going to get a variety of answers. Certainly, some of them are going to be money, possessions, and honor. Fame, notoriety. And Solomon again is returning. Those things are great. They are gifts from God. But if he does not give you the power to enjoy them, if you do not have a relationship with him, then you can have all the money, all the possessions, all the honor you're ever going to get or all that you're ever going to want, and it will not settle down into the bones of your soul. There have been a lot of articles written on why rich and successful people are not satisfied in life. And their solutions are ranging from, well, they've got to try meditation and mindfulness. That's one of them. Or they've got to try medication. Right now, weed is a huge, huge and rampant problem among successful businessmen and women. Or they say, you know what, the problem is you're not giving enough to people that are in need, so you got to generously donate. But the data is misinterpreted. And in the 17th century, Blaine Pascal knew it. He even said this 400, 500 years ago. There is a God, actually it would be 300-something years ago. There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be filled by any created thing but only by God. The creator made known through Jesus. That's the answer. Or this is the cause. If you don't want a relationship with God, listen, you can shove everything in this life under the sun, everything this world has to offer into the mouth of your soul. It's going to evaporate. It's going to leak right out the bottom. It's never going to fill you up. There will be a restlessness. And Christian, I'm going to tell you, there's a lot of us that are trying to do this. And you keep wondering why you're waking up miserable. Because nothing under the sun is designed to bring satisfaction to your soul. Not if there's no power to enjoy it. And that mad scramble for more, the dissatisfaction with what you have, you know it if you've got it. The belief that you would be happier if you just had, and you can insert whatever name there is. It all comes from a soul that is starving for the only true source of satisfaction, God. Now, I have a pressure washer at home. And there's all kinds of problems you can have with pressure washers. And if you know, if you have one, you know this. You can't run it, you can't run them until you have the water hose hooked up and running. And continually spraying out the nozzle. If you get a pressure washer and you just start it with no water coming in, you're going to crack the seals in the gasket. The heat builds up. It dissipates with the water. Well, very similarly, humanity is going to break down always without a relationship with God. 
And even Christians will break down if you're not continually walking with him. You can bring more and more and more in. You can run rampant in this life. But if you don't have a source of life-giving water coming into you, your seals and your gaskets, your emotions, your mental capacities, they're going to develop leaks and there's going to be breakdowns along the way. This is the curse, by the way, that God has placed on everything under the sun. It must all pass through the hands of God to you if it's going to have any kind of satisfaction for your soul. If you go around God and grab the things that this world offers, it has, has no accompanying power to bring you joy. None. Well, imagine for a moment that you receive a very large inheritance. And it's waiting for you in a bank vault safety box. You got that in your mind? It's in one of those drawer safety vault or safety boxes in a bank vault. And you go there to the bank because you've gotten that note from the lawyer, the attorney, and that manager. The bank takes you back into the vault, points out your box, and then asks you to produce the key or the code. But there's a problem. You don't have a key. You don't have the password. Therefore, friends, the items that are in that box are not accessible to you. So the key to unlock the satisfaction in your car, maybe it's a 1999 Mercury. Or that satisfaction in your mobile home. Or the satisfaction in your 3,500 foot, square foot, palatial estate. Or the satisfaction in your talents, or your position at school, and your fame among the athletes, or your position at the company. All of those, if you don't have the password to be able to unlock any of them, they have no ability to fill you with satisfaction. And the password, the key, is a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's it. And Solomon goes on to explain that dissatisfaction comes from a bottomless appetite. Verse 7. All the toil of a man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does a poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is a vanity in the striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The mere words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? Well, there's a lot in this. Solomon means far more than a love for food when he says the appetite is never satisfied. That word appetite, I'd put this in the margin of your Bible if I were you, is talking about the desires of your soul. Do you know what sin does? Sin inflates those desires beyond a level that is right and healthy and outside of God's boundaries. And this ravenous, insatiable desire is in the wise person, Solomon says, as well as the fool. He's in, it's in the rich and the poor. In other words, it lies heavy on mankind. It is inescapable. Every single person has this appetite. But it is so much 
to want and be satisfied with what you have. This is what Solomon's saying. Better is the sight of the eyes. Listen, if you have it, be satisfied with it because God gave it to you. And do you have a relationship with God to enjoy it? If you've got the wandering of your eyes, then your appetite is never going to be satisfied. By the way, you know this. You know this. How many of you, just raise your hand for a second. There's no shame in this. I'm raising my hand. How many of you, when you want something, begin actually the incredibly powerful process of research? And so you begin getting on Amazon, you begin reading review after review, you get on eBay, you find price after price, you're looking for the best. Listen, all the while that desire is getting bigger and bigger and bigger until all of a sudden what you wanted becomes what you need in order to function and be happy. That's the problem of sin. And that happens when you're no longer receiving what God has given to you and you go around him because you believe the lie that says, I cannot be happy without this in my life. Therefore, I'm justified in buying it or acquiring it. Solomon says, be content with what God has given you. So maybe, by the way, maybe... Jagger and the Stones learned something about this. Four years after the song that they wrote, I Can't Get No Satisfaction, they wrote another one that I'm sure you've heard. It goes like this. You can't always get what you want. But if you try, sometimes you might just find you get what you need. That's a good lyric. But of course, a question that you're really wanting to answer is this. How can we learn to be satisfied in life? I've told you the universal reality of dissatisfaction. I told you the cause of it. It's a bottomless appetite that will not receive from God. But what is the key to learn to live a satisfied life? Well, here it is, point number three, the means to find satisfaction. Now, let me give you a little bit of an intro. True gain comes one way. You ready? True gain, true satisfaction, it only comes one way, when it passes through the hands of God. If it does not first pass through God to you, it has no power to fill your heart with joy. It just cannot do it. When God, now listen, when God brings that girlfriend or that boyfriend into your life, he brings you gain. If he didn't bring that person and you go find them, you will not find satisfaction. When God moves your boss to give you that raise, he brings you gain. But when you are miserable and you badger your boss and you threaten litigation and you get your raise, you're not going to find any satisfaction in that increase of money. It just cannot come to you. When God orchestrates an even painful job loss, when God's the one behind it to prepare you for something else, he brings you gain. Every time, every season, chapter 3, that passes through God's will and he gives it to you, that will satisfy your soul, even when they are painful. Did you know, oddly enough, that you can find deep, deep soul satisfaction in the midst of a trial? But not if you try to find the shortcut out of it. Listen to a poem by model and actress Cara Delevingne. She writes this poem. Some of you are going to resonate with this. Who am I? 
Who am I trying to be? Not myself, anyone but myself. Living in a fantasy to bury the reality, making myself the mystery. A strong facade disguising the mystery, empty but beyond the point of emptiness, fold to brim with fake confidence, a guard that will never be broken. Because I broke a long time ago, I'm hurting, but don't tell anyone. No one needs to know. Don't show or you've failed. Always okay, always fine, always on show. The show must go on. It will never stop. The show must not go on. But I know it will. I give up. I give up giving up. I am lost. I don't need to be saved. I need to be found. That, unwittingly to her, is the answer for satisfaction. It's not so much you need to hammer somebody with the Bible. You need to let them be found by the one who loves them more than anyone. It's about relationship. The final line of her poem is a cry for relationship. And Solomon would say that's the cry for her soul to be known and to know her maker. Yet Solomon would tell her, as he does to you and me, that relationship must be on his terms, not ours. All that is so difficult for humanity. But God will accept nothing less. If you want a relationship with God, it must be on his terms. Whatever has come, verse 10, to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. This is a reference to God. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to me? God has decreed it all before we came into being. We cannot alter that one bit. God is sovereign. He is stronger than we are. No matter how much you complain, no no matter how many words you pray for a different outcome, his will will stand forever. And our problem with the sovereignty of God, it's one of really, honestly, distrusting his goodness. I don't think you'd have a problem knowing that God is utterly sovereign, if you were absolutely persuaded he's perfectly good. I'm going to say that again. I don't think you would have a problem knowing God is utterly sovereign if you absolutely were persuaded he is perfectly good. See, what makes God's sovereignty so threatening is this little thought that God has allowed bad things to happen in your life. And if he allowed that to happen in your life before, what will prevent him from doing it again? Therefore, I need to rise up and either share the throne with him or move him off. And therefore, I can control and manage my life. It is a lie. It is a lie. God is perfectly sovereign. And God is incredibly, perpetually good. He cannot not be good. There's not any unholiness in him. There's no vindictiveness in Christ, who is the perfect representation of God. Do not delineate between the God the Father and Christ the Son. They stand to represent one another perfectly. So the way you see Jesus in the Gospels is the picture of the Father. And he loves you. He cannot not be good to you. And God's power, it can never be separated from his goodness, his mercy, and his grace. Or you're going to be left with an all-powerful cosmic terrorist. That really is what it is. 
If you strip his goodness from his power, you've got a maniacal madman up in the cosmic parts of the heavens. That's why the Bible will never let you piece it apart. It goes together. They are inextricably woven. God is utterly sovereign, meaning he brings, his power brings all things into accordance with his will at all times. And he is perpetually good, meaning that every time and every season in your life is God's highest expression of his goodness to you, even the times that they're painful. For who knows, verse 12, what is good for, for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after the sun? The answer in those two questions is Jesus. Jesus is the only one that has died and come back to tell us about it. So he's in a position to, to know what is good for man. He created you by his word, Jesus did. The Father willed it, the Son spoke it, the Spirit brought it about. He died. He went to eternity with his Father back again. He sits by his Father's side, and he tells us what is coming, and he continually impresses upon us the goodness of his Father to do good to you all the days of your lives. The answer is Jesus. And here's where we bring it all back. You ready? The power of to enjoy your wealth, your possessions, and your honor will only come when you have a relationship to God through Jesus, his son. How do you do that? How do you do that? Here's how you do that. You first admit that you're a sinner. You admit that you have committed cosmic treason going your way rather than God. And it is developed into the very warp and the woof of your nature like it is mine. Nobody taught you to sin. You did not read a manual on how to be the best sinner in the world. It just came natural. Because you have a fallen nature like I do, like I did. The very moment you admit that and you come to God saying, I'm a sinner, and I cannot fix my life. I've tried. I've tried doing good things. I've tried going to church. I've tried being nice. I've tried improving myself. I've tried counseling. I've tried reading from the sages of history past. But yet I'm still so helpless. And I'm still so miserable. God, I cannot fix the problem in my soul. But I finally believe you can. And I believe that you sent Jesus, your son, your only begotten son, to live perfectly and to do all that you commanded, the only one ever to do it, to die on that cross as the perfect sacrifice. Not one sin, not one blemish, not one failure. He was perfect in every way. Something I could not do, but something he did. And he died on that cross, and somehow I believe now, God, that he died for me. He died on the cross where I should have been nailed, but he died in my place. And he's holding out to me forgiveness, and with that forgiveness life and a relationship with you i want that god and i'm willing to give my life to you on your terms not holding you at bay while i get my ticket to heaven this is a life that now belongs to you because it's only 
you that could give me the power to enjoy life. That very moment, and whatever words you express from your own soul, you will be made right with God, and he will give you eternal life. And all of a sudden, he will begin trickling into your wealth, into your possessions, into your honor, into anything that he gives you in this life under the sun. He will trickle into it now the power to enjoy it, whereas before, you just could not get it. Now he gives it. And you begin living now to teach other people that very same message. That's what Ecclesiastes is about. And if you're here right now, you may be in the balcony, you may be on this floor, and you have never come to Christ the way that I talked about, you do not have the power to be satisfied in life. You just don't. But you can. Why wait? Come to him and ask him to forgive you your sins and to give you life and learn to walk with him on his terms and he will trickle that power into you and you will live like you have never lived before. Amen?